Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is Owen Jones and welcome to the podcast. Afghanistan is essentially now falling under the total control of the Taliban. It's all but over. Now, how did we end up in this catastrophic situation two decades since a the current phase of Western involvement in Afghanistan? It goes back a very long time, but huge numbers of people have died, huge amounts of resources have been spent on this conflict, and it ends with the Taliban retaking the whole of Afghanistan. Now, we're joined by a brilliant guest today, Anand Gopal, who I actually spoke to you before the latest events, um, but he's an incredible expert who knows uh, about Afghanistan inside out. He spent a lot of time there, and we spoke about how we ended up in this situation, uh, the disastrous consequences of the Western intervention, why it was so calamitous, and also the consequences for the people on the ground and where next for Afghanistan. So we've got loads uh, we spoke to him about. Do support us on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. You keep the show in the road. And do subscribe. Leave us a rating. That always helps spread the word. And with that said and done, please listen to Anand's brilliant, insightful and incisive contributions. So Anand, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking your time to talk to us about what's just happened in Afghanistan. So first off, very basic question. Has the US been defeated in Afghanistan? Is that what the withdrawal represents? Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's absolutely clear that the US has been defeated. Um, If you look back at the US's initial aims, either um, to defeat the Taliban and to rid the country of what it called Islamic extremism on the one hand, or to establish a functioning, stable democracy. On both counts, it's completely been defeated. Um, And, you know, when I say the U.S. has been defeated, it doesn't necessarily mean that any other side really has won. Now, it looks like the Taliban is winning, and over the next few months, I think we'll see them take over large um, swaths of territory. But it's uh, what the way the U.S. has set up the system in Afghanistan is that it's completely fragmented. Uh, It's controlled by warlords and insurgent groups. And really, nobody's really won. And that's the real tragedy here is as the U.S. has spent 20 years here and um, tens of thousands of lives, you can't really say anybody's won this war. And um, in terms of uh, the portrayal of U.S. forces, which is that the U.S. Army, they're the good guys. And they their role over the last two decades has been to keep the bad guys at bay. And those bad guys now are on the march because the good guys. I mean, I know this is. I mean, this is actually if you watch Fox News, pretty much the kind of portrayal of much of the media. Uh, so I'm, I'm caricaturing it only slightly. But how you, that's the narrative in terms of the role of U.S. forces. What would you say to that narrative? Well, that's a narrative not just on Fox News. That's a narrative from the New York Times. That's the mainstream narrative, which is that you had uh, the U.S. fighting what was a good war and. Um, 
if the U.S. leaves, all of a sudden the, the bad guys are going to sort of take their place. But that actually gets the history completely wrong. Um, if you go back to right after 9-11 when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, the U.S. actually defeated the Taliban and al-Qaeda within two months. So like the, the extent of the collapse of the Taliban was extraordinary. Part of the reason for that is because nobody in the country really supported the Taliban. Even people who lived in their, in their heartland in the south were um, beginning to turn against the Taliban. So it was very easy for the U.S. to defeat them. Once the Taliban was defeated, most of them to a man put down their weapons and essentially just surrendered. Um, and they went back to their homes. So then you had special forces, American special forces on the ground with a mandate to try to fight a war against terror, but they had no enemies to fight. And so what they did is they allied with all sorts of uh, warlords and militia commanders, people who they brought back into the country, who had been expelled by the Taliban, brought them back into the country and essentially paid these warlords uh, to, for, quote unquote, intelligence to find bad guys, even though there were no, quote unquote, bad guys on the ground. What ended up happening in 2002, in 2003, in 2004 were, was that these militia commanders basically arrested thousands of innocent people and turned them over to the U.S. Some were sent to Guantanamo. Some were sent to uh, Bagram and Kandahar Airfield. There was widespread torture. There was basically a one-sided war waged by the United States against innocent civilians for about three or four years. And it's in the context of that that many people who had initially rejected the Taliban began to accept the Taliban back into their communities as a form of protection against what they saw, what they many Afghans have described to me is actually a form of terrorism, breaking into people's homes in the middle of the night, taking their loved ones away, sometimes never being seen again. And so the Taliban was able to reconstitute itself from having been a spent and mostly unpopular force to having a, basically a sheen of uh, popular legitimacy, at least in parts of the country. So if you, if you take that, uh, that's the historical truth, and that upends the actual narrative. Because if a lot of places where the war is currently being fought now, it's the U.S. that's seen as the bad guys, not the Taliban. In terms of the impact on, let's start with Afghan civilians, and you alluded partly to it there, but in terms of the, you know, huge numbers of Afghan civilians, of course, have been killed over the course of, of two decades. Um, and that included, obviously, included Bush, included Obama, included Trump. I mean, Trump himself, despite his posturing, um, civilian deaths increased by 330% in in the time that he was in office. Do you want to just talk through what the impact of the US-led occupation was on civilians, both in terms of death, but also wider human rights abuses? Well, the impact has been extraordinary. And, and the first thing that's important for us to wrap our heads around is we will see figures from the United Nations or elsewhere about the civilian toll. And this actually vastly undercounts the true toll. Um, and I'll just give you a few examples. I, in my travels in southern Afghanistan, I've met family after family who has lost uh, loved ones. Who, which have never been recorded by any of the official bodies, whether the human rights organizations or the United Nations, often because they are being killed in right in the war zone, which is very inaccessible to um, outside researchers. And so I think the toll, it's going to take us generations to truly understand what the, what the real toll of this conflict was. But even um, based on what we know now, the toll has been extraordinary. And um, you know, there was there's a, a area Sangin where the British troops were, were um, deployed and the U.S. Marines, where there are some villages where I did a count where um, the average number of um, 
relative loss by families was 12 to 13. And so you can just imagine um, the extraordinary amount of loss. And um, some of this is from Taliban IEDs. A lot of this is from American airstrikes, drone attacks, uh, targeted killings. Some of this is from people being caught in the, tr- uh, the crossfire between the Taliban and the coalition forces. Some of this, and increasingly more so nowadays, is committed by the Afghan army and the Afghan police, who have been extraordinarily reckless and, um, you know, in some ways are even more reckless than the Taliban or the coalition forces in their targeting of civilians. So it's been an extraordinary toll, and it's going to be one that's going to take a, a long time for us to really kind of sift through and see the, the extent of it. In terms of the sorts of, for example, human rights abuses committed against uh, prisoners, do you just talk us through in terms of how that particular element of the war was conducted by US-led forces? You know, I was recently in Afghanistan just a few weeks ago, and I met there a a former Taliban commander, and I asked him to tell me his story of why he joined the Taliban. This is a guy who had taken up weapons first against the Soviets when they invaded in the 80s. He was a schoolteacher. Uh, then in the chaos after the Soviets left um, in the civil war, he joined the Taliban. And then after 2001, he surrendered and he retired to his house. He was arrested. He was sent to uh, Kandahar airfield uh, where he was kept in a cage by the U.S. Uh, soldiers. He was tortured. He was stripped naked. He was electrocuted. Um, he had his beard shaven, which in the local Pashtun culture is very, um, it's a terrible insult. Um, and, you know, sitting across from this guy who is in many ways a, a steeled warrior, uh, has been fighting for decades. He has uh, bullets uh, lodged in his, in his body. When he was recounting what he had undergone in his ordeal um, in Kandahar airfield with the Americans, he broke down and started crying. And uh, then I asked him, well, what happened when you left? And he said, well, they weren't letting me live at peace. He, his house kept getting raided. He kept getting, uh, he, he kept getting the threat of torture against him. So he took his entire family, 21 people, and he fled to Pakistan. And he told me that, you know, I had no choice but to join the Taliban and fight this government and fight the Americans. Um, and that's the case not just for t- uh, many Taliban members, but lots of people who never joined the Taliban, um, especially the years between 2001 and 2006. Uh, torture was rife. Uh, I mean, a lot of us know about Abu Ghraib in Iraq. There was dozens of Abu Ghraibs that were happening in Afghanistan at that time. A lot of it didn't really reach the, reach the news, but um, that was really the standard practice. It began to change in 2006 when the U.S. began to realize that by, by um, torturing people in this way, they had turned large swaths of the population against them. So since 2006, the situation in the prisons has gotten a lot better when it comes to the U.S., but now what the U.S. has done is outsource a lot of that, uh, a lot of the worst behavior to their, to their partners who are militias, warlords, the Afghan army, Afghan police. And so um, today, if you get arrested by uh, you know, the Afghan army or police or by a militia, you will expect treatment that's no better than the Taliban and sometimes worse than the Taliban. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. In terms of how the U.S., I suppose, was defeated, I mean, this was obviously over two decades. What, what would you think? How would you assess? You gave one example there, I suppose, about how... US atrocities and human rights abuses drove people into the arm of the Taliban. What, you know, maybe expand on that, but kind of concretely, what were the main reasons that led over two decades to the defeat of US forces? Well, like I said, the US won this war in 2001. By December 2001, they had actually won this war because there was no more Taliban. And they had a choice at that moment. They could have, I mean, this is a country that had been at war and civil war for 20 years prior to the U.S. Uh, invasion. They had a choice. They could have done a truth and reconciliation committee. They could have brought the various sides together. They could have uh, promoted uh, people who were from civil society, who didn't have a warlord past. They could have done all of those things to try to build a democracy. Instead, what they did is they backed the worst actors. Uh, they backed essentially one side of the civil war that had been going on for two decades and gave them guns and money. Um, and so by 2004, they had essentially lost the war. And what I mean by that is by 2004, they had essentially armed one side to the teeth, and that side was preying on the local population. So the, the local population was giving support to the Taliban. Now you had two sides. And once the Taliban was embedded in local communities, by 2004, uh, it became very difficult to dislodge them because the way to dislodge them is to wage open war with airstrikes and you know various means that will cause many more civilian casualties. So what we've essentially seen since 2004 is a replaying of the same conflict every single year, which is that there's some village where the Taliban has a presence. Uh, the U.S. will either go in and clear that village for a moment and leave, the Taliban will come back, or they'll wage a battle there and uh, many civilians will be killed. And the relatives of the of the people who died will go then join the Taliban and this will replenish the war, etc. So um, the U.S. lost the war by 2004, maybe 2005 at the latest. And that that's, I think, what makes this entire conflict even more tragic is that everything that was happening now would have happened exactly in the same way had it happened in 2004. If the U.S. had withdrawn by 2005, we would have seen what we were seeing now, which means the last 15 years or so has really been a complete waste of human lives, uh, you know, American lives, British lives, and of course, Afghan lives. It's, that's, that's the real tragedy. In terms of the drugs trade and the so-called war on drugs, which has been a terrible, calamitous fate on its own terms globally, but do, do you want to just tell me in terms of what happened, the US war on opium, etc., in Afghanistan, and what's happened with the drugs trade in the last two decades of occupation? Yeah, I'll give you an example. So the, the province of Helmand, which uh, is was one of the most violent provinces over the last two decades, it's where the British deployed most of the forces as well as the U.S. Marines. Um, w- one way to think about Helmand is when the United States invaded in 2001, or let's go back even before that, when the Taliban took over the province in 1995, um, what the Taliban had done is they had overthrown a, a group of feuding warlords and there was essentially a four-way drug war between these different warlords. 
Um, and the Taliban just got rid of the drug lords and, and you know, established their theocracy. The U.S. comes in in 2001 and they bring back the drug lords. So they basically reignited the drug war that had been taking place until 1995. Uh, the U.S. backed some drug lords and opposed others. So, you know, the, the governor of Helmand province, Sher Mamad Akhmanzada, for example, was one of the biggest drug traffickers in, uh, in, in the entire country. He was a governor for five, six or seven years. Uh, he was backed by the U.S. And uh, what he would do is he would feed the U.S. intelligence saying, you know, such and such person is a member of al-Qaeda or the Taliban. And the U.S. would go and arrest him, roll him up and send him to Guantanamo or to Bagram and destroy his fields. What was really happening was that the person that was being targeted was a rival drug uh, trafficker. And so what the U.S. basically did is intervene in a drug war, side with one section of a drug mafia against another section of a drug mafia. Um, so it's no surprise that uh, given that, uh, so the Taliban had banned opium cultivation by 2000. By 2005, 2006, uh, Afghanistan was again the world's leading producer of opium. So uh, the U.S. has um, perpetuated this, and it continues to this day. In terms of those U.S.-led militias, uh, sorry, U.S.-backed militias you spoke about, can you just tell us just a bit about their role and what, what I suppose, happens to those militias now, what their role is at the moment in Afghanistan? Yeah, so the, the, US, the, the U.S. strategy in Afghanistan from the beginning has really been a militia strategy. You know, you might hear sometimes people saying, you know, like the U.S. did... Um, nation building and it failed. None of that's true. What the U.S. did is they, it basically empowered a series of militias around the country. And those militias were the ones that had the real authority on the ground. Whatever was happening in Kabul with the parliament, that wasn't as important as the power that the militias had because they were being funded and armed for the most part by the United States. Um, and um, sadly, that's what Afghanistan is, is basically reverting to. So now that the Taliban is taking over territory. Some of those militias are switching sides, but many of them are um, trying to retrench and fight. And um, we, I think we're going to see a civil war, all-out civil war. Uh, well, it's been a civil war for the last 20 years, but we're going to see a new phase of the civil war where a lot of these U.S. militias are going to be the main ones doing the fighting against the Taliban. And um, as I said before, this, for, for locals, um, there's really no distinction between these militias and the Taliban, except in some cases they even would prefer the Taliban to the militias because the militias are really mercenaries. What the U.S. did essentially after 2001 is privatize a lot of the war fighting. And so the militias are an expression of the privatization of war after 9-11. Um, and so that means that the militias are mostly in it for, for money and for looting and for um, you know basically getting what they can get. At least the Taliban, who could be just as brutal as the militias, are fighting for something else. And so people have this very difficult calculus uh, that they have to face when they're trying to decide how to survive. And sometimes they'll support the Taliban as a, re as a result. Just go over the things. Um, I mean, the standard narrative, of course, as well, which again, you've kind of touched on, but is that the US had no choice but to go into Afghanistan in 2001 after a devastating attack on its soil, in which 3,000 people obviously were killed in horrific circumstances. And because of the relationship between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, that that's why that war had to happen. I mean, what would you say about that whole narrative, which has become, again, this is from the New York Times, liberals to Fox News on the right? Well, I think, well, I've got to say a couple of things. One is in retrospect, uh, I'm not sure that um, having done anything at all would have been better than what actually happened, which is tens of, if not hundreds of thousands of Afghans have been killed. So, um, 
you know, of course, that's with the benefit of hindsight. But if we go back to 9-11 and to that moment, um, you know, it's there's a question that one can raise, which is that did the did the U.S. need to go uh, need to invade because that the first of all, it was based on a conception that the Taliban and Al-Qaeda are basically the same thing or that they're fused. The relationship between the two parties was much more complicated. Of course, Al-Qaeda were Arabs who were living in, in Afghanistan. The Taliban were hosting them. But there were divisions w- within the two groups and um, there were various offers. Some of them perhaps uh, leading, could lead somewhere, some of them perhaps just a way of stalling for time by the Taliban. Um, but now in retrospect, you can say, well, we should have uh, pers- we should have pursued diplomacy because uh, going into the country and trying to occupy a country and trying to basically organize the institutions of Afghanistan to meet the needs of the U.S. national security establishment, not to meet the needs of Afghans, would lead to disaster, and that's that's what's happened. Uh, the Taliban. Uh, did surrender right after 9-11. So even if you say, okay, there was no choice but to go in, within two months that war was over and the Taliban ceased to exist as a military or political entity. And at that moment, if the U.S. was actually committed to democracy and committed to nation building, they had an extraordinary opportunity to be able to um, you know, bring together the various sectors of, Af- of Afghan civil society, which wanted those things. And they did not do that either. Um, and then for the next three years, where there was no enemy to fight, the U.S. chose to fight an enemy, enemy chose to basically invent an enemy where there wasn't one. Part of this, I think, um, is related to the U.S.'s desire to go to Iraq. Uh, and so the war on terror mentality was almost, almost like Afghanistan was a staging ground to continue the war on terror on a grander scale in Iraq. And then I think a lot of the uh, architects of, of that war was hoping to, to go to Iran. So, you know, the, the U.S. had multiple choices from trying to pursue di- diplomacy more aggressively from the early days right after 9-11 to taking the defeat of the Taliban for what it actually was and trying to um, actually try to build a democracy in every single juncture, they rejected what I think was the right thing to do and instead doubled down on this ruinous strategy of counterterrorism, and that's led to disaster. And just finally, I mean, you've already touched on this in, in each of the answers, really, but where next for Afghanistan? Where do you see what will happen to Afghanistan in the coming months and, and beyond? And I suppose as well, what does this mean for U.S. power on a global stage? We're obviously already seeing the calamity of Iraq, Afghanistan. What does this, what do you think this means in terms of U.S. global power, the the significance of this defeat? Well, to start with, what's next for Afghanistan? So one way to think about the conflict until now is, um, I think many people don't realize the war in Afghanistan is, is really only in basically about half the country. Uh, maybe half or 60% of the country. And and those areas tend to be in the south and pockets of the north and the east. And I think what's going to happen as the U.S. Uh, leaves is those areas that have been at war for the last 20 years and where people have suffered extraordinarily for the last 20 years, those areas are going to come to, uh, come on, become at peace. And the war and the, and the violence is going to shift to those parts of the country that had been until now um, in relative security. So... Kabul, Herat, um, cities that have actually done quite well under the American occupation because 
the troops were occupied in places like Helmand and Kandahar or Khost and Paktia. So I think we're going to see a shift in the pattern of violence. It's going to seem like now a civil war is starting because the media tends to be concentrated in, in cities like Kabul. And so a lot of the violence is going to be a lot more visible to us. But really what's happening is that there's been a civil war ongoing for 20 years or really for 40 years. And the people who are at the receiving end, the, the people who are suffering at that civil war, those people are going to be shifting from, you know, from the south to different parts of the country. So that's a grim, I think it's a very grim uh, assessment. But unfortunately, that's, uh, I think, uh, really the legacy of, of the U.S. invasion and occupation of the country, which is continued civil war for the time being. Uh, and in terms of American power, um, you know, the U.S. has suffered uh, extraordinary defeat in Iraq, where they essentially invaded, occupied Iraq, destroyed that country, and then handed it over to Iran. They have suffered this defeat in Afghanistan. And I think that's partly what's underlying the U.S. ruling establishment and President Biden's um, desire to shift the uh, focus away from the Middle East and what they call a pivot towards China. And so I think that's where we're going to see American power increasingly uh, focused, China and Russia, over the next few decades. And um, that means, you know, the stakes of violent conflict is all that much greater for all of us. I mean, one of the defining features of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars for Americans is that however horrendous the violence was for uh, civilians in those two countries, the war really didn't touch most Americans. Uh, It really didn't affect most people. Uh, The number of people who joined the military was very small and they were concentrated in particular parts of the country. And so the U.S. ruling establishment was able to wage what was effectively a 20-year war without really people you know, pushing back. I mean, there was an anti-war movement in 2003 and 2004, but for the most part, if the U.S. really wanted to, they could continue the Afghan war for another 10 years because it's not like there's people in the street demanding an end to the Afghan war. There's more, more so like a kind of cynicism about our uh, you know, overseas uh, interventions, but that's not the same as like actively demanding that the troops come home and that we stop uh, these sorts of imperial policies. But I think that sets the groundwork for really a pivot towards Asia and Russia and maybe raising the stakes. Now you're not talking about fighting people in sandals who are like, you know, part-time farmers or part-time guerrillas in the mountains. You're talking about, you know, serious armies. And um, I think that's what we're going to see in the future. And it's a symptom in the, in the end, just to wrap up of, I think, waning American power, um, I think the U.S. has taken its own ideology um, of neoliberalism too seriously. They, you know, Afghanistan is an example where they privatized their uh, war fighting and gave it all to militias, and this is a failing strategy. And now the chickens are coming home to roost on that, and um, they're going to confront a very different reality when they face major world powers like Russia and China. And Angopa, we really, really appreciate your time, and everyone do get a copy of No Good Men Among the Living, America, the Taliban, and the War Through Afghan Eyes, which was universally uh, critically acclaimed, or by anyone with any sense, um, and was rightly a a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. But thank you so, so much for your time, your insight, your wisdom. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, Do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road. Uh, forward slash Owen Jones 84 leave us some stars that'd be nice spread the word and I look forward to speaking to you soon
Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.